Welcome to another episode of The Aesthetic City Podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a better, more beautiful and livable built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of The Aesthetic City, a content platform with a mission to inspire people to make our cities, towns and landscapes a bit more livable and beautiful. Today's guest is an architect, urban designer and a consultant. He's the former dean of the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture and co-founder of the Driehaus Prize. He has served as professor of architecture at the University of Notre Dame since 1991 and served as its dean from 2004 till 2020. He also serves on the jury of the Rafael Manzano Prize for New Traditional Architecture in Madrid. All in all, today's guest is incredibly experienced and has a deep insight in the education of traditional and classical architecture, which is crucial to the training of architects and planners that will fix the mistakes in our modern cities. So without further ado, please welcome from the United States, Indiana, Michael Lykoudis. Thank you so much, Professor Lykoudis, to be here in Utrecht. Yeah, how are you doing, first of all? Doing well. It's always nice to be in Holland. I haven't been here for three years due to the pandemic and... Uh, you know, I, I love coming here and walking the streets of Utrecht, Amsterdam, Delft, Leiden, and it's just wonderful to be back. You visited Leiden? Yes, I've been quite a few times to Leiden. Yeah. Nice, yeah, that's uh, that's my birth town. So that's ah. uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and what were your thoughts this time walking through Utrecht? Uh, well, you, you have been here, of course, uh, before, or yes, uh, yeah. a number of times. Uh, you know, we had started a summer program with the Utrecht College. Uh, a few years ago, many years ago now, which uh, was only for one year. And so I came several times to help organize that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very fine city to live and uh, you just see the life on the streets and a perfect example for good urbanism. But perhaps uh, jumping into the question. So, well, you you gave a lecture here, excellent lecture about, uh, well, Athenian architecture of the 19th century. And uh, you told me... a. Yeah, uh, anecdote about your youth in Athens, where you're playing among the ruins of the Parthenon. Yeah, so how was that like? And and did it at some point inspire you to become an architect? Or was it just a nice backdrop for one of your memories? Well, just uh, I spent my summers in Athens. I didn't actually grow up there. Okay, I spent yeah. every summer. And my grandfather would take me on Sundays or on the weekends uh, to the f- steps of the Acropolis. We would climb and you know, with a friend, and we would have a ball in some cases, and we actually played football inside the cella of the Parthenon, which today would be unheard of, uh, not the very least that, uh, you know, it's full of machinery and uh, reconstruction uh, uh, efforts. Uh, but it also is another issue, is that we don't, we no longer believe that our ruins in our past are part of our life. There's something separate. And sometimes that these uh, reconstructions, sometimes the way that we uh, we we we, uh, we play with our uh, our, our ruins and, and make them more and more artifacts to be uh, seen far away is a problem. And you know everything in Athens when I was there as a child was for the citizens and. You know, be it the ancient ruins, be it the shop, be it the square, the street, you know. And the buildings themselves lended, lended themselves to, uh, to be an education. You understood what a base did, you understood the moldings. Maybe not the way an architect does, but as a child, the sensory aspect of everything that you saw helped educate you. 
Yeah, you started at some point studying architecture. And uh, how was it different, you think, from studying architecture nowadays? Uh, I, I started entered architecture school in 74. Um, and with uh, very different expectations of what I would get uh, than I got. And uh, I had worked for an architect in Greece uh, the year before. I, and uh, explored the, the, you know, the neoclassical 19th century buildings uh, while I was there and the island architecture. Yeah. And I somehow thought that you know, all architects were trained to do buildings like that. And when I got there and I realized that, I, that that wasn't the case at all, that uh, I was told I could not do traditional architecture. And in fact, even in my thesis, when I tried to look at classical principles, uh, I was told that I would not graduate if I did a classical building. Yeah. I mean, was it a normal thing at the time? I, I, can, I can guess it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of it was that you know I had done so many different things up until then, and you know I was uh, I was not the most mature young person, and I just figured I needed to stick with what I was doing, which is the school. It's a good school of architecture, and finish it. Yeah. So I just stayed for five years and I finished it. Yeah. Uh, but in doing so, I also learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot about composition. You know. Cornell was a lot better than other schools where history wasn't even discussed. Uh, we were looking at Palladio, we were looking you, you know, at, at all sorts of uh, traditional sources yeah. and traditional cities. So it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't like uh, a, a desert of, 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 for, for someone who was interested in what I was interested in. It was a very, very good place. I mean, Leo yeah. Creer came and lectured. Uh, Aldo mm -hmm. Rossi, you know, all these people that were at the, the, the pre-classicists at the time were there. Colin Rowe, yeah. Michael Dennis. So why did you become or why did you gravitate towards traditional architecture? Well, I think it had to do with my childhood. Yeah. You know, I, I, I played in a 19th century city that had electricity, uh, yeah. basically. And, um, you know... It had a ritual to it. It had a, a, a rhythm to it, uh, a rhythm of rituals, rather. And mm. in, the architecture played a big role. I remember the mystery of looking in, in behind a gate, an iron gate, into a garden or, or a courtyard yeah. and uh, loving it and thinking that's this is what architecture can do. Yeah. A lot of young students, they go to university and they just do whatever and what is taught them uh, at a bachelor but at some point during your studies you chose to design a classical building so that was already there when you yeah yeah and my mother's uh, education as an archaeologist had something to do with it i mean i knew how to construct the orders yeah uh, already i mean she to always talked about yeah uh, the orders of architecture not as isolated elements but as part of buildings and part of cities so you know, it was yeah and you also saw Penn Station before it was demolished. Yes, yes. Uh, on the on the train trips from West Lafayette to Indianapolis to New York, uh, on the occasion that we took Pennsylvania Railroad, we, I think we had changed in Philadelphia, uh, another great tra uh, train station. Um, you know, we I got to see it. Of course, I didn't realize what I was seeing. I just remember yeah. being just overwhelmed by the yeah. space. Can imagine. And now I think they want to rebuild it, or some groups are actively trying to. Uh, yes, yes, they, they're they're trying. I don't know how they'll succeed <laughs> in, in this age of um, 
that we live in. But yeah. yes. Does it get any traction? You know, or I think every, everybody thinks it's a great idea, but nobody yeah. believes it can be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. I mean, the the I, I don't know like what kind of materials it was built with in in the time and what kind of craftsmanship and how much that would translate into costs nowadays. But um, it would sure be well. It would be. Uh, I, I have never been at the current Penn Station, but I heard it is not so nice. <laughs> oh, it's. Uh, it People scurry about like rats, I think somebody <laughs> once uh, said. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, well, perhaps now about Notre Dame. Uh, so could you perhaps tell about the history of the traditional architecture program in Notre Dame University? Well, its roots go back quite a long way. Uh, Frank Montana was chair of the School of Architecture uh, in the, I think, the 60s, early 60s. Uh, and uh, he was Italian. Uh, and thought that uh, students should go to Italy to study for at least part of their uh, time at school. And so he would he started taking voluntarily in the summers, you know, 10 or 15 students. And uh, this became kind of uh, uh, instilled in the program, and so he thought, well, why don't we just make the whole third year in Rome? So wow, yeah. um, he was walking about, and he saw a sign by a, of a building on a bill on a building, yeah, which said uh, for rent, or for lease, or for sale. Yeah, I think it was for lease. And so he goes and calls up the real estate agent, and the real estate agent shows it to him, and uh, he says, "I'll take it." <laughs> he comes back to Notre Dame and uh, mentioned this to the president of the university, who was his good friend, fortunately. <laughs> and the president said, Frank, you can't do that. Oh, I just did. I signed the papers and everything. <laughs> so yeah. that's how the program was, was, was begun. And every year, the third year, is in taught entirely in Rome. Wow. So if yeah. you're in Rome, you're studying traditional buildings, even though in the early days they also did modern buildings in the, in the city. Yeah. Uh, about in 1989... Um, Thomas Gordon Smith, a uh, former colleague, he's passed away, sadly, uh, came to Notre Dame as the new chair of the school. And he brought classicism. He brought me. He brought a few other people. Yeah. Uh, and we started a classical curriculum. Uh, I joined the program in 91 and uh, was put in charge of creating this classical curriculum. And so that's what we've been doing for the last uh, 30 years. Now, I have to say, you know, classicism wasn't about columns and about architecture. It, it embodied, when you said classicism in the early 90s, you meant urbanism, you meant the vernacular, the rustic, virtually all the kinds of architecture that link back to nature yeah. in any part of the world. It wouldn't have been necessarily Greco-Roman classicism. Uh, you know, we were... Yeah. We took our students, we take our students to China, we take them to India, we take them all over the world so they can understand the vernacular, the, lo you know, the local architecture, the monumental architecture, the yeah. public architecture. So what is at the core of uh, the skills that these students learn? Is it, is it proportion? Is it hand sketching? Is it uh, um, just uh, understanding of, of yeah, various uh, traditions of building? Well, it's everything. I mean, it's yeah. certainly it's composition, it's theory, it's experience, you know, yeah. the experiential side of you know, understanding 
buildings and cities. My provost had once uh, asked why we travel so much, and I said, well, you know, architects can't learn just from books. We have to experience the space because it's so different, the experience from the book and the plan and the drawing. But they have to draw. They have to hand draw, learn how to hand draw. That doesn't mean we don't do computer, but we we start out with hand drawing, watercolor, uh, and that creates their develops their skills for understanding, uh, you know, the, the constituent pieces of composition of line, shadow, uh, walls, openings and roofs, solid void, figure, ground relationships, and things like that. But our students are so well, I think, are so well educated in so many different dimensions that uh, we were, uh, the Wall Street Journal referred to us as the best school of architecture in the country. (laughs) Our our students get, from all the surveys that have been done, the highest uh, salaries of any architecture school uh, students uh, that have graduated. And... uh, and uh, they, they, they seem to be able to go to firms that do classicism, tradi- uh, traditional architecture, and modern yeah. architecture and avant-garde. Yeah. So it doesn't limit, it, it expands the horizons to yeah. study tradition. Yeah, because many of the, the, the first modernist architects were all classically trained. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They only ta- they only, the classical architects that were classically trained only taught half of what they knew, which is modernism. Yeah. And nowadays, what, what do you think of the, of the, the curricula of well, other architecture schools? Uh, do you think they lack an essential uh, part by not going into these, well, into the classical tradition? Well, I think the big problem is that, stu- that schools, and by and large our culture, teaches us to be in touch with our feelings, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but if everyone is in touch with everyone's personal feelings, then what you get is... The Tower of Babel, or you get, uh, you get anarchy. Yeah, you know, feelings have to be disciplined by knowledge, and knowledge has to be further used in in terms of, of uh, acquiring a form of wisdom. Uh, and uh, you know, talent uh, plays some role, but it's really knowledge and wisdom uh, and judgment that really make a good architect. And the feelings are important. I'm not saying you're not important, but they cannot be at the forefront. The idea of feelings at the forefront is part of how our is how our culture also puts the individual before the community, and what knowledge does, uh, it, it brings uh, the community at the forefront of you know the society. Yeah, and and things like the the value of beauty um, are such topics also discussed at your uh, oh, yeah, yeah very much very yeah. much. And because I remember that being, uh, well, uh, <laughs> not exactly being the case where I studied. And in a lot of places, it's seen as something subjective uh, and not relevant even. Um, and I don't know what your view on that is and how yeah, sh- should other universities also start embracing it? And, and how could they do it when they come from such a, well, completely different place? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um yeah, I, I think the modern world tries to say that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder and subjective. And, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't necessarily disagree with that because we can look at, two people can look at something and yeah. like it or not like it. But that's not the question. The real question is, how do you build a civil stage set for people to, to live out their lives, flourish, and contribute to the next generation? 
and that stage set is the city. Yeah. Uh, and with all its different thresholds to the private, to the different private realms, they're all connected to the public realm. And there's this balance between the public and the private realms, which does not exist in the modernist state, uh, in the techno-utopian state that we live in, because technology, we have used technology to further our individual, uh, uh, our individual preferences and wants and desires. They, they, we have not used it to bring people together, irrespective of you know, the, the mobile phone yeah. and... Uh, it's still, sir, it's primarily a, a kind of a n narcissistic device more than it is a communal yeah. device. <laughs> yeah. And, and also we see technology as an end in itself mm. instead of just a tool, uh, which I think, uh, yeah, Robert Adam also mentioned in, in our podcast episode some time ago. But, and I think that's the same for progress, that we just want progress as some sort of an end goal while progress towards what? And what is progress? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we've uh, sort of defied, uh, we, we defied the notions of what progress really was all about, which was to ensure a good, and a good and healthy life for those who are here now and a good and healthy life for those who will come after us. And yes, we should always search for new knowledge and, you know, look through to other worlds, but we also have to explore our own world and make sure that it's intact and, and, and can survive. Yeah. And, well, I think, of course, Notre Dame plays a big role in that. But another question, other universities are also starting up their own traditional and classical programs, I heard. But I'm not sure exactly how that field is. Uh, what, what, what is exactly happening there? Uh, there was a flurry of activity, I would say, about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, the University of Miami was always sort of traditionally... Uh, slanted, if you will. Uh, they were focusing more on the architecture of the Caribbean, yeah. the vernacular and, and monumental architecture as well. And, and they were quite a, quite a vibrant program. I think they've walked away from that in recent years. Mm. Uh, change in leadership uh, is probably one reason. But yet there are a few people there that still teach traditional uh, architecture and urbanism. Uh, Yale had a a, 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 uh, a strand, Leo Creer and Dimitri Porfirius would alternate teaching there. You know, other architects from yeah. all over the world would come and, and teach there. Michael Imber uh, taught there recently. So there's a strand of classicism there, but it's not what Notre Dame is, which is a full-fledged yeah. program. And you can only teach so much in one semester, uh, so much in one year. Yeah. So. So there's only one full-fledged uh, classical program in the world right now, you could say. Or is there any in other, other countries? Or Well, the, uh, the, the College of the Building Arts in Charleston okay. uh, also focuses entirely on, on classical and traditional architecture. Um, th and uh, that, that's a very good program. Yeah. They have also a lot more hands-on uh, craft than we do, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I uh, often wanted to bring that to Notre Dame when I was dean, uh, and you can only do so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there will be one uh, in the next decade uh, when you see what's happening in the world? Like, Are you optimistic, pessimistic, and could it even come to Europe at some point? Oh, absolutely. I, I think uh, it could be an anywhere 
something there is such an interest uh, in uh, in traditional architecture from especially the youth. Yeah, I think the pressure, the upward pressure of the next generation will kind of for, will force that. Will yeah. will bring it to be. Where do you think that pressure is coming from? Well, I, I think traditional cities, um, you, you know, speak to people's freedom. I mean, I mean, yeah. you can go anywhere you want in Utrecht, and you can't go anywhere you want without a car in Charl in in uh, in the United in most cities in the United States. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you wanted to live your whole life in Charleston, uh, in the in the city center, you could do that. But the pressures of life yeah. sort of forbid that. Yeah. And you need a car. And uh, and I think the traditional city liberates people from all sorts of things that you know are are not productive. Yeah. Like the automobile uh, keeps relationships between people. Uh, the lack of anonymity, yet an- anonymity as well. I mean, there's a balance, uh, a sense of ecology, yeah. you know, living, uh, walking everywhere, and and having durable buildings with uh, beautiful elevations. You know, uh, is sustainable. I mean, if it, something's ugly, it's not sustainable. If it's beautiful, people gravitate towards it. And I think young people, with their uh, with their their sense uh, for ecology and environmental matters uh, for their own personal lives and that of their families. They will want to be in, in cities like Utrecht, not in the suburbs of places like Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah, because they, they save a lot of uh, energy and costs. Um, of course, the, the car-free areas are very child-friendly. Uh, yeah, you have more social interactions. Uh, there's a lot of studies, I believe, also that depression is lower in these areas and why have all these so many benefits that i sometimes wonder why it is like it's it's a it's such a clear yeah clear advantage so yeah i i also i I think it should be embraced more but i sometimes well i see the 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 line concept of that city in uh, saudi arabia and then i think yeah (laughs) well when you don't think the world has limits you know you, you 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 can go mad and the madness of, of the techno-utopians has uh, percolated uh, quite deep in some cultures. And that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, because we see it in, in Dubai, of course. And I think they have also already seen their mistake now because they are also fully going on walkability right now and, and cycling. Well, I'm not sure how cycling in such a hot desert would work, but they will probably build tunnels which are air-conditioned. <laughs> well, I mean, there is an architecture uh, that deals with heat. Uh, you know, the souks uh, of, the, of, the, of many Middle Eastern cities and you know, the narrow walkways and yeah. co- sometimes covered, partially covered. And yeah. uh, the way you create breezes, the way you use water, even in limi- places with limited water, to cool uh, you know, as the breeze comes over the water and, and back up into the house. Uh, so... There are passive systems with very little energy yeah. that can cool. I don't know if they'll be able to cool the environment uh, in the future as uh, as global heating uh, takes uh, more of a grip on us. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they were certainly suitable f- for the environment of the pre-1950s world. Yeah. 
And I, I can imagine that a country like Dubai would at some point see the advantages of traditional building and that they would flip towards it. Um, because, yeah, I think yeah, the, they will get aware at some point that how their building is not sustainable and they have the funds to to switch back now and they can be radical because they have such a well top-down system and they would and and so i would expect that they could actually send a yeah maybe set up a school at some point but that's just uh, my speculation you know I, I think that the world we are going to hit some limit of, of some sort we're already seeing wildfires people are yeah. going to understand that wildfires are tied to global heating yeah people call it climate change it's global heating yeah, <laughs> and and the changes that are going to be coming will affect some places harder than others, faster than others, and will. But there will be some boundaries that will be hit. It may not just be climate; it may be political. We're seeing tremendous political forces yeah. at work today, and I don't know what these will will bring us. But at some point, oil will run out. At some point, gas will run out. Yeah, and. Uh, it, even coal will run out, I mean, assuming that the environment can absorb all of this in the first place. <laughs> but there are limits. There's limits to everything. And one of the things that classicism and tradition have always done is they have been the, the architecture and the urbanism of, of economy. Yeah. Uh, because they're, they can, they're, they're, while they aim to have high aspirations, they also uh, were, were really meant to to be as economical as possible, to bring use local materials, local craftspeople, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's actually an ecological way of, of, of designing and building. I don't mean you have to have Corinthian columns everywhere, but <laughs> yeah. a load-bearing masonry building, which has beautifully proportioned, uh, which has roofs which drain, that, you, uh, that shares the heat with its adjoining buildings, allows itself to be cooled through, through, through uh, flow through ventilation, these things are just common sense. Yeah, it's they're free, right for the moment. I mean, the climate may become inhospitable at some point, but right now they are free and they are excellent ways of going forward. Yeah, and they can make use of materials that don't need any energy, like stone. Um, and that's another interesting point uh, Alejandro Garcia Hermida told about uh, that we use more and more energy intensive uh, materials like way more Portland cement, which requires a lot of energy to, to make glass, which needs a lot of energy to make steel, which needs a lot of energy to make. Well, when you look at, at former building materials, they were very low energy, like, uh, well, Adobe... Even even fired uh, bricks are are midway up there with because you need a lot of heat to 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 bake them. But things like natural stone are yeah you can just get it out of a out of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, well, br bricks last a long time. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. There's the story of this Roman building in southern England. Uh, that a colleague of mine was has always put up in his powerpoints. This Roman building was taken down and the bricks reused to make an abbey. And so the Roman building was built uh, sometime, I don't know, early yeah. part of the first millennium. And uh, it's had you know, 1,500 years for those trees to regrow and for the energy that yeah. it was expended to be amortized. So it's actually a very low embodied yeah. energy system because yeah. it's embodied energy over time. That's the that's the equation, uh, not not uh, whether or not uh, not they are uh, uh, 
high, high embodied energy or not, but do they last? Yeah. Yeah. The problem with glass and steel as the main uh, materials of a building is that they are frail. Steel rusts, glass breaks, yeah. and they also don't do much for heat containment or heat uh, dissipation. So. Yeah. yeah, steel heats up very quickly under heat and, uh, and glass retains it inside. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, but okay, yeah, I think that's. Uh, I, I would definitely also want to talk to someone more about these topics because that's, I think, a very interesting topic as well. So you also designed the the Driehaus Prize at the University of Rotterdam at some point. How did that happen? Well, uh, Richard Driehaus was very interested in classicism, and um, he had talked to one of the people on our board, our advisory board about what he might do to further the cause of classicism. Uh, that person was Matthew Walsh. And uh, he, uh, he suggested to Richard that he come talk to us at Notre Dame. And uh, so on Matthew Walsh's advice, uh, Richard came uh, or asked, asked me to go up to Chicago. Uh, you know, we, we met. He liked uh, how my suggestions about how we might make a prize. And a few months later, we had our first jury. Uh, it was Jack Robertson and uh, Liz platter Zeberg, and uh, we we you know we gave the prize to Leon Creer, yeah, and Thomas Fisher. I forgot. And Thomas Fisher was the last editor of Progressive Architecture, which was a very good magazine uh, for the profession at the time. But uh, yeah, our first jury was three people. Then it grew to five. Now I think it's six or seven fluctuates a little bit people kind of come in and come out yeah yeah uh, in what way do you think the prize has stimulated the field well first of all it, uh, it it gave a sense of community to all those who are in some way pra uh, practicing traditions it also showed the world the breadth and the range you know we had leo we had dimitri uh, dimitri Rafferios, alan greenberg uh, and then we had, on, on, the, on the other side, uh, people like Robert Ames Stern, who is quite eclectic in his approach to architecture. He does modern buildings, he does classical buildings. We had Michael Graves uh, and, uh, and, and many others in between. And we also have people from different cultures. Uh, Ongard Satrabandu won the prize in 2019, and he, he's a Thai architect who fuses the shared building traditions that he's seen of the world and, and, and puts them in, into, uh, into reality in, in, in Thailand. Uh, we also get to Abdel Wahid El Wakil, who I think Alejandro yeah. earlier today uh, showed some of his work, and he received the prize. So th we've been very careful to show that the classicism is not a Greco-Roman enterprise, no. but it is a world, it is part of the shared building traditions of the world. Yeah, and uh, and that it it has a purpose beyond just being beautiful. That it is ecological. That it is accessible. That it has all these other qualities, and that the the sources of uh, of uh, uh, you know, of of the sources of imagination that classicism has been all, uh, able to provide are inexhaustible. Yeah. Yeah, one question because you told about you, you told about the width of the various vernacular styles and and traditions you have, and that made me think of how 
well, traditional architecture is actually kind of, you could see it as an indigenous architecture of an area. And then, yeah, looking at how it is being replaced right now, it almost seems tyrannical. <laughs> and uh, yeah, very also very colonial, while the same is being said about uh, classical architecture by well opponents of it. Like, yeah, it is supp- suppressive and it's colonial, but yeah. <laughs> That's the arsonist in charge of the firehouse. Yeah. Um, y- you know, yeah. I was in Doha years ago with Abdul Wahid, and we had a meeting with the financial minister one evening, quite unannounced. And I was brought up to the, the, the chair that was elevated. The minister of finance was sitting, and they were watching a football game, actually. Somebody whispered something in his ear, and then he turned quickly around me and he said, what do you think of Doha? I said, well, it's a, some very nice aspects. You know, I was not in the city very long, so I hadn't seen it. Uh, and so he sort of joked around a little bit, and I said, I'll tell you what you think of Doha. You think these people are crazy. They live in the desert, but we have glass and steel buildings. Who does that? You guys brought this to us. You brought this. Before (laughs) 50 years, we lived quite sustainably on this place. But now you brought this to us. I said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't. I'm kind of opposed to bringing you these things or bringing anyone these things. (laughs) But anyway, the colonial aspect of the technological project is something that you know, the future generations will talk about. Yeah. And the efforts of the so-called avant-garde to paint tradition as either fascistic, authoritarian, or whatever, is ridiculous. And, it, and, and they're just looking at their own selves when they're saying that. Yeah, yeah. But it, it constantly comes up, and I think it's so annoying. <laughs> well, the traditional city yeah. is, uh, is democratic. It, it allows democracy to, to flourish because it is accessible. It, it, it links locality, the, the neighborhood, to the larger city, to the larger region. And it, it, it allows children to walk in the street. Doesn't mean they will, I mean, are crime-ridden <laughs> places. But I was fascinated by, by a, a conversation I had with one of my students from Japan this uh, last year. The two-year-old kids in Tokyo when he was growing yeah. up, would walk across the street and get something for the, for the family, some grocery. Yeah. And I remember when I was, I wasn't two, but five or six, I would walk to the bakery and get the bread and bring it home. You can't do that in the modern city because of all sorts of reasons. Not all due to form, but some of it's political, some of it's economic, some of it's social. But the traditional city allows that to happen. Yeah. I think it's a very nice benchmark as well to to measure well the freedom of, of inhabitants in the city and also looking at children how how much freedom they can get by how safe the city is. In the Netherlands, we have of course bikes and children are taught very early to take the bike and yeah just go around. And of course, it has also in the Netherlands we have the effect of people becoming more paranoid and keeping their children more uh, close to home but i remember uh, uh, being very free because well we have a very good cycling infrastructure and i could just take my bike and go anywhere and uh, also or just of course just walk around as well by foot and get lost and uh, something you you would get home again but <laughs> that's the ultimate freedom as a, as a kid uh, we didn't need like a helicopter parents taking us by car everywhere we could actually just uh, experiment around uh, and, and and yeah find our way through new areas 
and it would always kind of end well. <laughs> but I, I can imagine that's, uh, that's in some ways still uh, far off for some areas. But are you aware of the work of stronger towns and their whole vision on how uh, many suburbs are or many cities are insolvent because of yeah their practices? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, su- suburbia, especially the American form of sprawl, is deadly. I mean, it causes all sorts of problems, all sorts of waste. Uh, I mean, you know, we can, we can talk till the yeah. sun comes down and <laughs> yeah. about how many problems it's created. Yeah. People don't see it. They think it's, I have my car, I have my rights, I have this, I have that. I have my own world. Yeah, but you also, you know, Americans are killing each other at unprecedented rates because the whole country is going mad. Um, and, you know, this a place that has a strong sense of community uh, re, you know, it, it's harder to go mad. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, the illness that we have in, in the United States is, is really de- d- deeply rooted in the destruction of the sense of community, local, you know, from the neighborhood to the town to the region and so forth. And even as Americans, I mean, that yeah. you know, we no longer see ourselves as, a, as all as Americans, but as different interest groups, stakeholders, not citizens. Yeah, and uh, I think better urbanism is one way to reach it, but will it be enough? <laughs> it's not enough. No, no, you need the politics, you need the economics, you need the social structure. You need culture, and culture doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, perhaps going to some last, uh, some last questions. How do you think students who do not study at traditional architecture uh, schools yeah, but would like to, yeah, or if they're studying in programs where they have a lot of peer pressure by other yeah, students who might mock them because they, they like traditional buildings. What would your advice be to these students? Finish your program and go find a traditional program in, in the graduate study. <laughs> and you might find faculty yeah. in various universities that would take you on, you know, uh, and you might get a, a, a uh, to cre- you might be able to create your own program in some universities. Um, the ICAA is another uh, very important uh, institution in all of this, the Institute for Classical yeah. Architecture and Art. And they have courses in the summertime. They have intensive courses. They have uh, local courses at the various chapters. <coughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's another form of education that, you know, most of us who, who practiced classicism in the 80s and 90s uh, didn't learn it at school. You know, we taught ourselves, yeah. and we read books, and we practiced, and it was a little awkward at first. But yeah. eventually we got it, and we worked with others, and we got better. And the next generation got even better. Yeah. And, the ne- and the third generation, will, 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 it'll, it, it continues. It, just, it will continue. Yeah. What would be your, your first tip for someone who wants to start his, his self-study? Uh, which, which resources? I mean, the, the ICA is, of course, amazing with their videos by Calder Loth. Uh, I was a v- big fan of Calder Loth video, by the way. This, but I can imagine uh, there might be other useful sources. Well, is it to have a basic library of, yeah. you know, uh, trying to understand the world's traditions and, uh, you know, starting out by reading Leon Creer's books? Uh, I think his most effective book was Leon Creer, Architecture and Urbanism, 1969 to 1991, something like that. Um, And then there were some very good essays in building classical, some of the early uh, 
uh, early volumes that were developed uh, during that time. Uh, Carol William Westfall uh, wrote Architecture in the Age of Historicism. And that's a very, his side of the book explains very clearly the notion of typology and, uh, and building, building types and why they're so essential to understanding cities. And so uh, Nature and the Idea of a Man-Made World by Norman Crow. Yeah. Also a superb basis of understanding how our, all architecture comes from nature. And uh, I, that's a, I give that as a primer to uh, all, all my uh, first-year students when I was dean. Yeah, in, in what way could you give a short, uh, short explanation about that concept? Oh, the, well, the, uh, nature and the idea of a man-made world, uh, its premise is that all architectures came out of nature. Uh, the local materials, the local climate, the local cultures, and they uh, either discovered similar things from uh, with different histories, but they, they all came to similar conclusions. And so the idea of the dome, the idea of, of the pitched roof you know, comes from a tent or from a lean-to, or the, the idea of weaving a building together uh, versus stacking bricks. And what does that do to texture, to composition, to uh, the idea of enclosure, to the idea of opening? and no, Alejandro actually this morning I think outlined yeah. it all fairly well. Yeah. But Norman puts it in in, in a in a stream of uh, information that bu builds it up and gives it to you. Here are the pieces. Here's the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. So it's it's co it's cohesive and coherent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and are you are you yourself now writing something or working on some projects at this moment or? Yeah, I'm working on a book, uh, the, uh, the Shared Building Traditions of the World, where I'll take seven projects and analyze them. They're mostly modern. Uh, one of them is in Amsterdam, is the Westermoski. Mm. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was designed by uh, a Parisian uh, architecture firm, Nadia and Mark Breitman. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it is a really an, an excellent a textbook uh, or example of how to make a an, uh, uh, an insertion into a, a contemporary urban fabric. Yeah, because its surrounding is actually modernist, and so they begin with modernist buildings at the ed edges of the of the development, and as you get closer and closer to the center, they become more vernacular than classical than Byzantine, yeah. Uh, yeah. and 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 it, or Islamic if you like. Uh, but at the end, when you step back away from the complex, it's Amsterdam. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's, you don't see the different identities, but you see Amsterdam. And I think that's what's uh, fabulous about it. And also the other fabulous uh, part of this project is that uh, you have two French architects who happen to be Jewish designing for an Islamic group uh, in, another, in another country. And... Yeah. Them, all of the participants understanding and having respect for each other's cultures. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the neighborhood is Dutch. It's not a Turkish neighborhood. It's not an Islamic neighborhood. It's just a neighborhood. Yeah. And there's social housing in it. It has market housing. So this is a story of inclusivity, of getting along, of mutual respect. Uh, and it, it's an amazing building, a series of buildings. It's a fairly large complex complex. So that's one project, and um, 
There's another project in Thailand, uh, a couple of projects there that of Angard um, Satabandu, uh, of uh, uh, a project in Egypt uh, by Hassan Fatih and oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, and of course the uh, 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 in uh, Abdul Wahid uh Oxford uh, Islamic uh, Center, yeah. which is in Oxford, but it's an Islamic center. And how does how do we how do we bring all these cultures so that we can represent them in the building without desecrating them and without uh, violating the environment too? Yeah, yeah, and that's I think a message no one should in any way uh, disapprove of. I would think, right? <laughs> it's such projects in any way uh, because they might be traditional or something that would could not understand. Uh, I don't either, but then again, you know, we're yeah. part of the choir, so we, yeah. <laughs> we, we it's hard for us. But they, they find a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe do you have any final remarks to the listeners who might be interested to point them to some other interesting things? Well, I, I think the one that has to be, uh, uh, there has to be a message of hope to the younger generation. But hope doesn't just simply bring good things because you hope for them. You'll have to work hard for them. It'll be, it'll be very, very difficult days ahead. Yeah. I'm afraid our world is going to go through a contraction of sorts. But we can, but we can work to make it an elegant contraction as opposed to a disorganized and, uh, and, and uh, tumultuous contraction. Yeah. So but I, I think I have great hope in the, in the next generation because um, they are coming to ideas that have flourished for century and for millennia all on their own because nobody taught it to them. But just by walking in the streets of Utrecht or perhaps of London or Delhi or people or Beijing or Shanghai, if you were lucky enough to see the, the fragment of the, old, of the old world there, they're coming to these ideas on their own. Yeah. So it's like uh, in the 60s when politics was the big issue uh it still is uh but uh no people believe that you couldn't stop democracy and you couldn't stop freedom it's always in people's minds and i think that the same thing with our cities you can't stop people from thinking about making beautiful and sustainable and wonderful cities yeah thank you so much for being here and for making the time to sit down with me and i can't wait to welcome you sometime again in amsterdam or in utrecht and i would also very much like to sometime visit notre dame because uh, that's i think a place that must definitely come uh, by sometime yes you uh, will be waiting for you thanks so much thank you for listening to another episode of the aesthetic city podcast you can find more information on michael lacudis on his website mlacudisarchitect.com Find the link in the description below. I also included links to the Notre Dame School of Architecture and the Driehaus Prize. With The Aesthetic City, we hope to achieve lasting impact, but we do need support. So if you really like the mission of The Aesthetic City, consider supporting us as a patron, because with enough patrons, this continuation and further growth will be possible. And it's not for nothing, of course, because patrons receive early releases, exclusive content, and access to the community. Find the Patreon link in the description below. If you liked this episode, please consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information about this platform on theaestheticcity.com or follow our Twitter page. I hope to see you back soon. Thanks for listening. Until next time.